so we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast and we are with a very interesting guest. We have Akiva Malamed here. He's a student at the International in, in, Interdisciplinary Center in Hercilia and he has contributed to liberal currents and, and libertarianism org. and we're going to, to talk about um, nationalism. So you, you wrote a piece about about uh, nationalism and libertarianism.org, particularly the, the, the book of Johan Hassoni. And it seems that there has been a lot of talk about nationalism, but do you think that even beyond the, the, the book, the there should be, now that we are in the entering the, the 30th anniversary of the of the Berlin Wall, a, a kind of, of, of reframing the, the debate about nationalism, because a lot of, of, of the debate has been centered particularly in the, in the, in the more uh, recent time in, in, in kind of uh, right-wing nationalism and, and right-wing populism and some, some others use that term, but there was someone actually making an argument in, in, in Twitter and also in an article uh, when Trump was elected that, that the national revival didn't start necessarily um, in in conservative circles, but in the radical left. He was arguing that, that it was Milosevic who, who brought back nationalism in the more recent years and, 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 and the kind of nationalism that the that that is the more modern nationalism is is is, is Milosevic light in some ways, even if it, it it's obviously Milosevic has a very different views on economics and and a lot of issues of Trump or other kind of politicians. But he was trying to argue that 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 is kind of the the problem that the framework of nationalism people try to conflate nationalism and the right and, and, and that, that also is, is much more complicated than, than narrative. Right, so I think you're right that nationalism is probably not just a right-wing phenomenon. It's um, the, the idea of a political spectrum is sort of a complicated question to start with, right? The, the notion that there's a right wing and a left wing and they're on separate ends of ideology and that they, um, so that support for nationalism is somehow only a right wing thing. I think it's helpful if we think about, um, I think it's helpful if we think about the political spectrum as a circle or as some, sometimes people make it into a horseshoe. Um, and the idea is that there are different trends in ideology that focus on different things but can overlap in ways that make them more similar than they are different. So there are aspects on the radical right and the radical left that differ. But the both right and left uh, can have a tendency towards uh, collectivism and a collective identity. Uh, that's in the in the form of the left, sometimes that takes the form of a workers' movement or the labor movement, the proletariat. In the form of the right, it's something. It's it's usually characterized in terms of uh, a common culture or ethnicity. Um, 
But even with, on the radical left, the, that notion of workers' rights or the proletariat is not always characterized in international terms. It can also be characterized in national terms. And various people on, on the left, uh, including people that you wouldn't call far, far left, but someone like Bernie Sanders, for example, um, in America, has talked a lot about needing to protect the workers of America from international trade, from international migration. He's called uh, open immigration a conspiracy by the wealthy and the Koch brothers to you know, screw over and, and, and ruin the, the fates of workers in America. And you see similar rhetoric from some left-wing parties in uh, Europe as well. I think uh, Syriza in Greece and the, the Five Star Party in Italy, similar kinds of rhetoric. So there's a focus on uh, a collective identity of the people that live in your country are the people that are the most morally important unit in the world, and that the way that you think about the world is in terms of the people of your country versus the people of other people's country and a process of dividing the world between us and them. So there's probably more overlap between the right and the left on nationalism than you might expect, although the left at least I tries to avoid, at least explicitly, the idea that nations are based on ethnicity or genetics or or culture in the kind of um, in the kind of way that right wing people do. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if a right if a left winger wrote a book the way that someone like Yom Khanzoni did, where he defines not nation states and defense nations on the basis of ethnicity, but they might think about their goals, their egalitarian goals in nationalistic terms and in collective terms that cross over into similar ways that right wing thinks about nationalism. Yes, that, that, that makes uh, that cool go into the next topic that is kind of how the, the case of, of, of Scandinavian nationalism, in particular right wing Scandinavian nationalism, is very curious because when we think in nationalism, and particularly in the U.S., the kind of nationalism that that that, that is that Trump represents is a very uh, hug the flag kind of nationalism with the flag with American symbols, the, the bald eagle, and things like that. And but in in there is a book uh, by a ethnomusicologist in in with American, but was doing research in 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 Sweden about the the radical uh, uh, musical movement and it was very he was initially interested mostly in metal and, and the first chapter was about well metal and it was very interesting because he he said that that it, it was a very curious way in which despite that 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 Sweden is still to this day but it, when he was doing his research it was much uh, the the amount of the, the the population of ethnic Swedes was overwhelming the majority and it still is but the the the, the refugee crisis has made that it's uh, it's not the huge number as, as it used to be but but still they are the majority but that how they kind of feel marginalized and how they they were feeling um uh, in in some ways like uh, a pariah of, of a country that that was kind of in, in the narrative that were 
internationally a country that would be ideal, but they feel that, that they were kind of left behind in some ways. And, and another chapter was dealing with, with the, the issue of rap, and it was very, very strange because initially when, when, when people in the, in the far-right circles, particularly even in the more explicitly Nazi circles, start to, to hearing people being interested in rap were, were confused because they, they associate uh, rap with, with black people, and obviously the more racialist elements of the far-right were... Uh, consider uh, the generic culture, uh, African American culture, and and but the curious thing was that that basically they they kind of try to to gain legitimacy in the issue that they feel also like like when they were uh, most interested in the in the metal scene they were kind of interested in the in the kind of uh, how to put it in a also, as songs about marginalization, it was kind of, of a mirror to what African Americans are in, in in the U.S. to to that sentiment. Obviously, with various difference because the the ethnic Swiss still are the the the, the ethnic majority in, in in Sweden. But it was very curious because what what I could understand for for what I have been reading is that. For example, in the particular case of Sweden, the, it was in that way that the that, that nationalists gained ground. It was with the radical, uh, the radical political movement gained ground, particularly in the metal scene. And then, you know, even in I, I don't know how to describe it, but, but there was a band that was kind of described as Nazi pop. <laughs> it's it, and well the the. Ace of Base also was was kind of linked to 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 the so it's it's very kind of strange the story of, but it's it's a very it's the 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 relationship between the 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 radical politics the, the radical uh, music as a as a way and counterculture as a way to gain people to the movement and if it's true that that Sweden Democrats when they appear they are in in ties and you know they appear formal, but the the way that 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 the right wing nationalist movement in 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 Sweden appeared, it, it seems to be very different than than the, the way that 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 we understand or or kind of radical movements as you know more mainstream or old people necessarily, and and it's very kind of interesting because. It also goes against some narratives. Uh, I, there was an article in I don't remember it was Newsweek or Foreign Policy about the youth wing of the Alternative for Germany, and they were arguing actually for for climate change action, although their climate change action also included the restrictions on immigration and and promoting uh, 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 sexual education in, in the third war in order to. To slow the the, the the number of people, basically, it was very curious and, and it's very strange, kind of how this 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 uh, sometimes countercultural movements intersect with nationalism and make them make it in a in a very different way that would be normally understood. Yeah. Um, so I think you're talking about a couple of different things. One is the way that 
nationalist or even racist movements might use pop music. And the other one is about the way that nationalist or nativist or populist movements might use issues that are traditionally associated with the left. And I'm not sure those are the same thing. Um, so if you think about like metal and rap, both of those genres are musics of protest, right? They see themselves as ways of questioning power, they're aggressive, they're angry, um, they, they have an emphasis on um, a sort of subcultures of angry young men, right? Who are trying, often men, not exclusively, but it, there's a sort of sociology to it where it's often the province of young boys between the ages of like 14 and 25 in terms of their core demographics. And they have the quality of trying to push back against systems that they see as oppressive. Obviously, rap, because of its origins in minority communities, particularly African Americans, has is less easily translatable to a general a, a general mode where anyone uh, can think about it uh, as theirs because it has a kind of distinct ethnic heritage, the way that metal doesn't quite as much. Obviously, metal is very white dominated, but it doesn't. It's not perceived as being a heritage of white people, the same way that rapid procedures being the heritage of black people. But I think both of these genres have the, co have the commonality of being music that is about protesting, pushing against the status quo, against authority, it reflects anger, and it is populated by people who are often the target audience for nationalism and populism, which is alienated young men um, who maybe don't have a sense of uh, identity or social place or economic success. Um, I would say primarily identity, um, and so are looking for a way to feel uh, transcendent and proud, and so they use this kind of, these forms of protest music in order to reflect that. So it doesn't actually surprise me that none of the rap are conduits for nationalism or populism. Um, obviously they're also conduits for social justice and left-wing thought, and there are lots of bands, I wouldn't say that the majority of metal or rap bands are far-right or nationalistic, and usually those kinds of bands get isolated and alienated from those scenes by the majority of people. Um, so there's, you know, for example, in metal, there's a reason that the Norwegian bands are considered extreme outliers and are scary and unusual by the rest of the metal community, and the same thing goes for rap, right? Like, the, the bands that are racist in rap are marginalized and unimportant, especially in a scene that's so heavily minority. It would be very difficult for them to make inroads. So um, that, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. In terms of climate change and, and right-wing movements taking on that as a cause for reasons to restrict immigration, things like that, it doesn't surprise me that a right-wing movement would, would or, or a nationalistic movement would agree with climate change or it's considered an important cause or it's a reason to restrict immigration because there's no reason why nationalists are necessarily anti-ecology. And actually there's a lot of interesting uh, research and history and the connections between um, 
a kind of ecological pro-environmental attitude and nationalist or fat or even fascist attitudes. You see this all over uh, the Nazi movement um, and other later nationalist movements where there's a notion of human beings as this kind of organic natural life form that needs to return to a kind of uh, pre-modern um, urges and needs and desires that were part of this ecosystem and need to be one with the earth and one with our feelings and our desires and our relationships and get away from all this technology. So there, there's lots of crossover between nationalism um, and environmentalism, which is obviously not to say that all environmentalists are nationalists or racists. And in fact, none of all, very few of them are. But there is an interesting intellectual and sociological uh, crossover between environmental or ecological thinking, particularly of the really radical kind that wants to get rid of technology and certain kinds of nationalism. Um, there's also the idea that um, modern technology and mod not just technology, but modern systems of social organization that have then created environmental impacts like uh, global capitalism and trade and mark the market society are then responsible for various kinds of social harms that include some notion that the people or the nation are being undermined um, and the people's kind of natural habitat is being undermined, the, the ecology or the environmental context. Uh, and you see that in the, uh, the, pop the popularity and the commonality of, <coughs> of criticisms of markets and trade, uh, especially in the European far right. So lots of criticisms of trade, neoliberalism, markets, um, and connecting that back to um, a fear that these systems are undermining some kind of uh, pure concept of the nation that is sort of strong and independent and separate from other nations. And uh, in particular, that these, excuse me, uh, that these things enable uh, immigration and mixing between different, different peoples and ethnicities and nations, and they see that as dangerous, obviously, for the purity of the nation. Yeah, the other thing I was going to, to ask you, you in your piece of, of Hassoni, it's, it's very curious because now Israel is, is back on the news. I was uh, watching Dorjbel that it was uh, about the complexities, for example, of, of, of Ethiopian Jews to, to 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 make Aliyah to, to Israel. And, and it's, it seems that you know, like uh, Hassan uh, makes a lot of arguments, but in, in the moment of making, um, um, there are limits even to to be a nationalist state. Can can uh, can nationalist state really work in some way if the definition of nation is broad and inclusive, or or, or is the nation very? Um, in its own logic, it's it's it's, it's kind of a, a fallacy because it it it, it uh, societies are complex and, and they are not obviously homogenic in in, in many ways, in, uh, linguistically and ethnically and uh, and obviously culturally. Right. So um, I think 
you're touching on a, a larger issue within nationalism with the Israeli example, uh, which is that nationalism, which is almost exclusively a modern invention, and so people who are interested in that question uh, can look at, at, at a lot of the prominent scholarship on nationalism, stuff like Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities or James C. Scott's Seeing Like a State, other stuff like that, that most nationalism, not, not all nationalisms, but most nationalisms are the creation of people in the modern era who want a sense of identity, who want a sense of place and self in a world that's very chaotic, that changes a lot, that is very disruptive culturally, technologically, socially, um, a lot of, in a lot of different ways. And so what they do is they create, create a mythology of a kind of sh shared heritage and being a shared unit um, that's sort of all one people, that there isn't a lot of plurality or heterogeneity, we all have the same language and culture and so forth, um, and create uh, this idea that somehow um, when we talk about a country or a nation, we're talking about one single thing. But if you look at the history of nations, that's clearly not true, right? Nations are created by one group of people conquering another group of people, and then establishing sovereignty over an area, most of the time. And that's something you see uh, across the history of, of nationalism. Alternatively, nation, nations are also, well not alternatively, but sort of simultaneously, and this is something Anderson talks about, nations are created by people who are very different from each other, feeling closer together because of technology and, um, and, and um, education. So the growth of things like national railways and universal standard time and, uh, and national newspapers makes people who are living in very different places feel more connected to each other in ways that they wouldn't have had until those things are invented. Otherwise, this this person living in this little in this little village, you know, in the, in the south of France, and someone else living in the north of France, and basically they don't have much to do with each other, um, except uh, except for maybe that they pay taxes to the king, but they may not speak the same language. This is actually an important point in the history of nationalism. Uh, at the time of the French Revolution, only something like half of all people in what we call France actually spoke French. Some of them spoke German. Some of them spoke other various dialects of French or Italian um, or, um, uh, or, or English, a whole variety of things, so, or Spanish. So na nations are always artificial constructs, right? This is why Benedict Anderson calls them imagined communities, right? They're, they're, they're ideas of a larger collective that we create for ourselves because we're trying to See, our, see ourselves in the modern era as part of something larger than just an individual um, who has to make choices and form their own preferences and identity. This is actually something I talk about a lot in an article I wrote for Liberal Currents called In Defense of Men Without Chests that people can check out, where I, trace, I try to trace the growth of modern populism and the alt-right to the way in which modernity is very disruptive to people's sense of uh, emotional and, and existential stability. And they're looking for a, a sense of self and a sense of pride that recreates what they imagine life used to be like, even though it was never actually that way, because na nations um, are a fairly recent phenomenon. So I think this applies to Jewish people as well, to get back to the Ethiopian thing. Right, so 
Jews have never been a heterogeneous people, right? The Judaism is an ethnicity and a religion, uh, and those things are intertwined in very complicated ways. But the way that different Jewish communities understand what that intertwining means has depended a lot on where they came from, right? So if you're an Ashkenazi Jew living in, I don't know, 17th century Poland, what it means to be a Jew is the people that live in your village. They look a certain way, they talk a certain way, and that's very different from the way it is to be Jewish in, you know, 17th century uh, Morocco, right, or Ethiopia. And obviously there's crossovers, particularly between um, Sephardic and, uh, and Ashkenazi Jews, but the more disconnected Jews are from the mainstream of how Jews self-recognize in their own conception of what it means to be Jewish, the harder it is for them to integrate other pe those people into their into their own image. So that I think that goes a long way to explaining why the integration of Ethiopian Jews uh, and Sephardic Jews, but especially Ethiopian Jews, has been so difficult in Israel, because Ethiopian Jews have been sort of disconnected from the way that the majority of Jews have lived and seen themselves um, and obviously look different. And Ethiopian and Jews have inherited um, ideas about what Judaism is that are predominantly Ashkenazi and Sardi, uh, but particularly Ashkenazi. And so the image of who is a Jew is a white person that follows the teachings of certain rabbis, certain traditions of law, um, and things like that. And so there's a kind of disconnect in the way that they understand what being Jewish is. So the same kind of mythologization that you see in a European context of inventing France happens when people, happens in the state of Israel where people invent Judaism, or invent what Judaism is as a single thing. Um, and so that creates, obviously, xenophobia and racism and exclusion uh, yes, I, I think the the other subject that we could uh, touch is on, 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 on civic nationalism. Because sometimes there are some mostly liberals who argue that there is a bad nationalism and there is um, another that is, in theory, at least good. And and sometimes this this civic nationalism, or maybe we could call it even liberal nationalism, uh, is is a very very subtle way, or of 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 in in other ways to to put still some idea of 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 the nation and as above the others of of your nation of one's nation, and I think one one example is. Um, of this could be that there are some that that, that argue that, that Trump, for example, is kind of an exception in, in many ways, particularly the uh, American historians and political scientists that try to to put the, uh, Trump and, and his phenomenon as kind of an exception and then, then try to avoid kind of the complex legacy that, that has been uh, of, of of presidents who, who overuse their power, even if sometimes not in the in the abrupt way that, that that Trump does, but but how to or how governments not only the U.S. but but how um, 
some things, for example, the the in 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 Macron's France, which is not uh, a, a, a government that, that calls itself nationalism, but kind of tries to defend quote unquote some kind of republicanism, the kind of uh, of of repression that some protests have had, it's it's much more strong than 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 even in, in countries in Latin America that the interior have authoritarian governments like Bolivia. I mean the uh, here there are protests but the, the most people injured are be between protests between different sides of, of the protest, not necessarily the police don't, don't act as as violently as they acted against the, the Gilet Jones. And it seems like there is kind of this narrative that there is a bad nationalism and a good nationalism, but but the question is is the what makes good this nationalism? Because if, if you put uh, your nation and the group of people that includes your nation as above the others, uh, a lot of these things that you were describing that the other or kinds of nationalism are finally justified, and particularly in the American sense. The kind of, uh, of, of way in which uh, many times this liberal nationalist has been an excuse to exert power over the, the war is also kind of uh, of dangerous in many ways. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I think you made an excellent point there at the end, where you talked about how um, nationalism, even of the civic variety, can be dangerous um, and problematic. It's definitely an improvement over the ethnic kind or the racial kind, obviously, because it doesn't exclude people on the basis of something that's totally morally arbitrary, like race or ethnicity, but it's still exclusive, right? It, def it defines people as morally important or significant because they happen to be born to a particular, in a particular geographical area, to a particular state, and that's just as arbitrary as anything else. Now I think it's better because it, it, it it's better because also because in, in terms of the uniting factor that gets people to ally with one another, it's on the basis of shared ideas, which means that it's much more inclusive than than race, and it means that more people can join, right? So famously, the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, and it's based on a set of ideas, and based on the Constitution and the Federalists and all that stuff. Um, and similar with France, uh, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, the, the, the rights of man and the writings of the philosophes and all, and, and all that stuff. So it has the potential to be more inclusive because it's based on a set of ideas. The challenge, of course, is that the way that people will, will understand those ideas, it depends on how universally people actually understand those ideas. If they think about the way that those ideas are applied in terms that are exclusive, so that, for example, they believe that certain kinds of people aren't able to join our club because they are not able to be part of what we can, of our, our set of ideas, right? So let's say that um, Muslim immigrants in France or in America are somehow unable to be good members of society because they can't be member. They can't buy into our set of ideas. Then it becomes just as exclusive as ethnic nationalism, just in a slightly different way, because it's some notion that the people who are different from us, who come from a different 
cultural background from us are in their essence, in some way, incapable of living in a peaceful, cooperative society and contributing to the life of the, the, the life and culture of the nation. So it, it's, it's, I, I definitely think that civic nationalism is an improvement over ethnic nationalism, but like you said, it's, it has a danger of being exclusive. And by definition, all nationalism is a artificial construct of a group of people who live in a particular place saying that we are this and you are that, which creates divisions between people that aren't necessary. Yes, I, I think I, I agree. I think that, that eventually all forms of nationalism has had their complexities and, and, and deserve uh, criticisms because uh, they they are in in the end uh, lim limiting uh, the individual's freedoms in one or another way um i think we could leave it here so what uh, how the people can find you online so people can find me on twitter uh, at akiva underscore malamet and i also write at liberal currents and libertarianism.org okay Thanks, Akiva. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Camilo. Have a good time.